Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, John, for your kind words of uh, welcome, and thank you, uh, Sharon and Kim, for bringing those uh, wonderful readings uh, to us. Uh, to minimise any disruption, I've been asked to continue the series that we've been looking at, and so the passage you set for today is that passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great statement about the resurrection, but I'll make some reference to the John 20 passage as well. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer, can we? We thank you, gracious God, that you are a God who both keeps your promises and those great prophetic statements in the Old Testament find their fulfilment in Jesus Christ. As we gather today, help us to, to catch afresh the wonder that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus was put to death for our sins, but raised again that we might be put right with God. May we do serious business with you today, and may we be transformed by the realisation of what you've done for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Easter will not be quite the same for much of our world this year. If you've been watching the news and seen some of the terrible things that have been happening around the world, acts of terrorism, bombings of two Coptic Christian churches in Egypt, um, lorries being driven into unsuspecting pedestrians in uh, key places, most recently in Stockholm, and of course uh, bombings in Paris which still linger uh, vividly in our, in our minds and the terrible loss of innocent life as a result of that. And then of course we have our own Lent cafe siege. Easter will not be quite the same for many people around the world this year. As I thought about this, I thought the last 15 years in a sense has been, there's been a, a whole series of terrible things which might shake the foundations of people. People wondering what does the future hold? Where is security be found? whether it was 9-11 with the bombings on the Twin Towers and uh, the Pentagon building, the tsunami in 2004, which shocked the world with terrible loss of life, or indeed even in 2005, the London bombings, when my wife and I were overseas at the time. And of course there was the great global financial crisis, which again shook the foundations of many people and uh, shaken people's hope in our institutions, our confidence in our institutions. These are uncertain times and many people are unsure if there is anything stable which you can rely upon. Indeed, especially the events of 2001, September 11, 2001, have in fact uh, caught people by surprise. No one believed something like that could happen. And people are looking for answers and looking for hope. In this void, it appeared that people might turn to God and might find comfort in gathering together and seeking God and finding the God who has always been there. But 9-11 has not sparked a revival in American Christianity in North America, as some might have hoped, but in fact it has left people fearful of all religious groups. In fact, we have people saying all religions are therefore bad. If we could be free of all religions, we'd live in a perfect world. Four days after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, churches around America participated in a live satellite broadcast called America Praise, a 90-minute initiative offering prayer, support, hope and direction. 
But things have not changed greatly in the Big Apple around that time. Shortly after that, a friend of mine who was working in New York wrote to me uh, with mixed news of what was happening. As he watched the downturn in the US economy, particularly affecting New York, unemployment at its highest level in the city for many years, and all churches seeing a reduction in giving to their funds and their ministries. Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, where my friend has been linked, had had to cut the grant to church planting, a major initiative, in fact, in the city in Wall Street, cut it by 57%. So these are uncertain times, aren't they? The question for us is, will we therefore hang loose or will we stand firm? as the opening verses of our Bible passage stress. <coughs> For all of us this Easter, we will need to ask ourselves serious questions about where our confidence really lies. Indeed, is it in human institutions? Is it in government? Is it in uh, the other things which we so readily rely upon as bringing stability in our world? Or is it in fact just the belief in the good life? that we are entitled to. Is there something else? Is there something more stable, something more lasting, something which is not susceptible to the vagaries of this contemporary world with all of its uncertainty and all of its tragedies? On this Easter Sunday, as uh, Christians around the world will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we need to uh, claw our way through the mountain of Easter eggs. We need to scare off the plague of rabbits and we need to see if we can discover the essential meaning of Easter, the great Easter message. When St Paul wrote his great defence of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he was at pains to emphasise that Christians must not be based, this must not be based on some illusion. Any idea that it offers a pie in the sky when you die is in fact something to be dismissed immediately as a travesty, a caricature, of what the Christian message is all about. In fact, if for four times in this opening chapter, his readers are warned not to place their hope in something which is, and I quote, vain, useless, or futile. It's absolutely clear that we need to be rock solid in where our faith is based. Those three words occur in verses 2, 14, 17, and 18 of our passage. In his introduction to his defense, he's, this is what he says. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. If we were to update this statement, we could say that Paul is concerned that we are standing firm, not hanging loose. One of the sad things about many church people, let alone the general populace, is that tragically they are vague about some of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I hope that is not true for you this morning, but tragically it is true for even people who gather in churches week by week. Indeed, we must not uh, be guilty of what's called the doctrine of charitable assumption, assuming that people in church that they are truly saved, truly born again, truly part of the family of God, we mustn't make those assumptions. Every person must make a personal decision for Christ. They can't make it through their family. God has no grandchildren. You have to make a personal decision for Christ. And so tragically, we see some disturbing statistics 
around the church. Indeed, one newspaper some time ago reported on what might be regarded as a series of true confessions from a whole spectrum of churchgoers. In an article entitled Leap of Faith, the correspondent surveyed churchgoers on issues like divine judgment, eternal life, evolution, sex outside of marriage, and so on. Those who belonged to Anglican churches, looking right across the board, did not come off very well. Only 74% said they believed in a personal God. Can you believe that? 14% said they had minor or serious doubts about whether Jesus was both God and man and whether he rose from the dead. 17% are certain that there is no divine judgment or don't believe there is. And of particular concern are those beliefs which concern the resurrection and the issue of eternal life. 30% of churchgoers said that they hoped to receive eternal life and another 10% said they didn't believe in it or didn't know. They are alarming statistics. Now this is not the position of the early followers of Jesus and I hope and pray that it is not true for anyone in this building today but we do need to be aware of these alarming statistics. Indeed the early Christians were so convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead that they were willing to stake their lives upon it. I came across a quote from Tacitus, the uh, secular Roman historian of the time, and he indicates something of the conviction which undergirded the early Christians. Listen what, what, what he writes. First Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then on their information, large numbers of others were condemned, not so much for their incendiarism as for their antisocial tendencies. Their deaths were made farcical, dressed in wild animal skins. They were torn up to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited as dark substitutes, as substitutes in, the, in the darkness. Nero provided his gardens for the spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus at which he mingled with the crowd or stood in a chariot dressed as a charioteer. Despite their guilt as Christians and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied, for it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality rather than the national interest. Now that's a purely secular comment on what the Christians were prepared to endure, the conviction which drove them to suffer even to the point of death, so convinced were they of the truths we're considering this morning. St Paul's long statement in 1 Corinthians 15 insists that this is of utmost importance. The bottom line is, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then the Christian faith is a hoax. If we've been conned, as it were, indeed, we've been sold a lie. To bury your head in the sand and to go on living like these things actually happened when they didn't would be pathetic. This is like living in fantasy land. And worse than that, it meant that we are absolutely lost in our sins, for that is the corollary of what Paul is saying. Utterly lost in our sins. Jesus is not the saviour. He cannot save. We are lost in our sins. Now, if you are here this morning, if anyone is here this morning and has serious doubts about the central fact of the resurrection, this is my plea. Don't stay in that limbo state. Seriously examine the evidence for yourself Get hold of a copy of Frank Morrison's great little book, Who Moved the Stone? 
or Kel Richards' modern-day reconstruction, which examines the evidence from the view of a newspaper reporter, or the book by Kel, uh, Lee Strobel called case, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel, who was a secular, cynical lawyer in Chicago, was challenged to look at the evidence for himself, and his life was transformed as he looked seriously at the evidence. Now, Paul lived in a world where naturalistic explanations would have been commonplace. Pagan thinkers generally adopted the position, when you're dead, you're dead, nothing more. That sort of nihilism is pretty popular today and it completely removes any sense of accountability. Any idea that one day we will stand before God and have to answer for ourselves, especially answer of how we have responded to his son. For that is the crucial question. Indeed, if you were asked the question today, what happens when you die, how would you reply? Would you answer, when I die, I know I'm going to be with Christ to go to heaven? Or, when I die, I hope I'm going to heaven? Or, when I die, I will cease to exist? Or, when I die, I don't know what will happen? Well, the good news is you don't have to toss a coin on these options. For God has let you in on the secret and given you a preview of what is possible through the raising of his son from the dead. What will actually be true for you when you die is tied up with your response to Jesus. And that is why this is so important for us to consider this again this morning. Your response to the gospel, the good news that he preached. Many people are secretly terrified by death, they may not admit it, but deep down they are terrified and they block the thought from their minds. It's never the sort of conversation you enter into at a cocktail party and talk about the seriousness of death. That will kill the conversation well and truly. Most people do not like to face up to the awfulness of death. Like the golfer who had an angelic vision that one night and he was asked what he would like to know about the afterlife. This is a joke, by the way. So uh, he asked the angelic uh, figure uh, what was uppermost in his mind, being a golfer, do they have golf courses in heaven? And the angel replied, do you want the good news or the bad news first? There seems to be a bit of a theme with Andrew's good news and bad news. The good news is that there are significant, magnificent golf courses in heaven, picturesque fairways, bunkers with light fluffy sand, putting surfaces like bowling greens, and the sun shines every day of the year. And what's the bad news? The golfer asked hesitantly. And the angel replied, you're on the starter sheet. Tee off next Saturday at 9am. <laughs> we don't like to face the awfulness of death. We, indeed, we joke about it. We want to take the sting out of it. But it is a reality. And we have to be serious about it. Now, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't leave us dreading death, but gives us confidence and assurance no matter what the future holds. That word assurance is so important. Have we confidence in Christ, absolute assurance of our salvation? Well, there are three things I wanted you to note so that we are not left in any confusion on this matter. No doubts on these issues. First of all, Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel. Literally, I want you to make it known emphatically so there can be absolutely no doubt about it. In the letter, and particularly chapter 15, Paul sets the key elements, sets out the key elements of the gospel, what this message is all about. 
and it formed part of the apostolic preaching in the first century and led to the great missionary outreach which broke out following the, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. What F.F. F. Lewis in his great book calls the spreading flame as the outreach of the gospel spread out over the then known world. Indeed, if you examine the speeches in Acts, you will find these basic elements are always present, the core ingredients of a gospel message. That's why Paul can say to his readers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you of which and which you received. At the heart of the gospel message were the historical facts that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, it was all prophesied, all foretold, that he was buried, make no mistake about that, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to his disciples, all of which we read about in verses 3 to 8 in our passage. Each of these elements are essential in order to arrive at a genuine understanding of the gospel. They deal with the reason for his death, that is, to deal with the sin problem, our separation from God. They deal with the result of his death, that is, our salvation. The price has been paid. Jesus has paid the debt. And they deal with the reversal of the verdict of the human court in God raising him from the dead that we might go free. The three R's, the reason, the result, and the reversal. You see, the death of Jesus is not some grotesque miscarriage of justice should never have happened. Jesus repeatedly said that he must suffer before he entered into his glory. Three times in Mark's gospel, he shocked his disciples by saying the son of man must suffer. There is a divine necessity about this. This is the very reason he came into the world. One of the things about biblical Christianity, which our world glosses over, of course, is the seriousness of sin. It is an affront to a holy God and puts us at enmity with him and must be dealt with. And did you never arrive at an accurate understanding, assessment of life on a proper understanding of God and the human condition, unless you give full value to the seriousness of sin. As the Negro preacher said when he was talking about this, God says, I just can't stand sin. It is serious. Indeed, as Isaiah told in the Old Testament in that great prophetic passage, all we like sheep have gone astray, all of us without exception. But this is not all bad news, for the second thing about Easter is that God had it in mind, the reason and purpose for Jesus' death. And so secondly, I want you to note and to appreciate the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. I want you to appreciate the gospel. What Paul says is that believers in ancient Corinth not only received the gospel about Jesus, but by this gospel you are saved. You pass from death to life darkness to light, being without hope and without God in the world to having a living hope, as the Apostle Peter would put it, a complete reversal. This is certainly good news. Instead of carrying around this great burden of guilt and failure, you can be free of this burden simply by turning to Jesus. I thought about John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, and indeed the, the account of Christian's burden falling from his shoulders, and I, I quote, 
and made him give leaps, three leaps for joy when the burden, the pain was removed. The experience of leaping with joy knowing his sins had been forgiven. The burden being removed. The summary of Jesus' own preaching, of course, is in Mark 1, 14 and 15, where Jesus says, Turn away from your sins and believe the good news. Stop living in a way that ignores God and pushes him to the periphery of life. Confess your sins and turn to Jesus Christ and ask for his forgiveness. And when you do that genuinely... He promises to turn you from being at enmity with him, being an enemy of God, into one who is his friend. Indeed, instead of being a guilty sinner in the eyes of God, you can have a fresh start with your record wiped clean. Though your sins be like scarlet, Isaiah says, they will be as white as snow. What remarkable and wonderful promise that is. Paul knew that personally what that meant. Indeed, he described himself as the chief of sinners, one who persecuted the church of God. You saw that in our passage. But because of the salvation that Jesus offered, he could say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. It was powerful in changing the persecutor into the proclaimer of Christ. So do you have a proper appreciation of all that Christ has done for you? Thirdly, Paul says, I want you to stand firm, therefore, on the gospel. Now, do you note what Paul says here? By this gospel you are saved if, if you hold firmly to what I preach to you. You see, the gospel determines both our spiritual condition and our daily conduct. There has to be a a sink between what we profess and how we behave. There cannot be any dislocation between the two. And so uh, Paul can write in Romans 5.2 of this grace in which we stand. We stand and live out of that experience of God's grace. This is what it means to enjoy peace with God. There is no room for hanging loose here. Indeed, if you read some of the other New Testament letters, you will discover that Paul warns his friend Timothy about Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place, already happened. A total distortion of the truth. Paul says that such people in their teaching will spread like gangrene and their destructive ideas will just destroy some people's faith. You might think it astonishing that people who sat under the brilliant teaching of Paul should so quickly be led astray by false teachers. But that can still happen today. The resurrection of Jesus is not some optional extra. It is a fundamental part of the Christian gospel message. Paul can say in Romans 4.25, he was put to death for our sins and raised for our justification, raised that we might be put right with God. In raising Jesus to life, God reversed the verdict of the human court that treated him as some sort of messianic pretender. And in preaching on the day of Pentecost, Peter could say, you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the, de from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God had the final word. But there is something seductive about false teaching. 
And we have our own modern brand names for those errors today. These are the modern myths about the essential goodness of man. Do you hear that coming through in the media? Basically, people are really very good deep down. No reference to the fatal flaw at the centre of our being. No reference at all. Indeed, the, the myths go on. The suggestion that moral values are relative. You just decide them for yourselves. No sense of absolutes in right and wrong. And the promise of some coming utopia when everything would be fine and we just keep convincing ourselves. The modern day myths which so easily deceive people. These are two, there are two strong conditional statements here in this, in this passage. If you hold firmly to the gospel and the other is the warning unless you believed in vain. There has to be integrity about your trust in Jesus, your profession of faith. There needs to be real integrity about that and you must hold firmly to the gospel message. On this Easter Sunday, there is a double warning for every one of us in this building. It is possible to have a counterfeit faith, a pseudo-religion, which is not grounded in the truth of the gospel of God's free grace. And equally, it's possible to be fickle and changeable in terms of your Christian profession if you are not securely grounded in God's truth. Jesus is that firm foundation. What he has done for us on the cross and what God has done in raising him for the dead is the basis of our faith. So what about John chapter 20? What a wonderful reading that is, isn't it? Reference to uh, all those who encountered the, the, the risen Jesus. But there's a special emphasis on Thomas. Thomas who's come down to us with the dubious epithet Thomas the doubter. All sorts of reasons cause people to doubt. Sometimes it's a terrible crisis in their life which leads them to turn away from God. Sometimes they're distressed as they experience bad things. Some people retreat into a sort of depression. Whether it's doubt or discouragement or depression can lead people away from God. And we need to recognise that all of us are susceptible to those tendencies. But I like the video which appeared some time ago by Tony Campolo from Eastern College in Pennsylvania. It's on an audio tape, actually. That'll give you an idea how old it is. But it talks about uh, his famous talk, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Whatever bad things are happening now, don't lose sight that God turned Good Friday, what seemed to be Bad Friday, into the great hope of Easter Day. You can find it on YouTube, by the way. That's how you, you, can, you can access it today. Let me give you a taster. For anyone who might be facing trials and suffering, despair and disappointment, his answer is, it's only Friday, but Sunday's coming. Let me give you a taste. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter is a-sleeping. Judas is betraying. But it's Friday, and Sunday's coming. It's Friday, Peter struggling, council conspiring, crowd vilifying. But it's Friday, Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the disciples are running, Mary crying, Peter denying. But it's Friday, Sunday's coming. 
It's Friday, Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, his spirit burdened. But it's Friday and Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the world winning. People are sinning. Evil is grinning. But it's Friday and Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the disciples questioning, the Pharisees celebrating. But it's only Friday. It's Friday, hope is lost, death is won, sin is conquered. But it's only Friday and Sunday's coming. My friend, my friend, Sunday has arrived. Jesus is alive, defeated death, the tomb is empty, everything has changed. Joy and amazement. That was what was on the face of the disciples. So what are the implications of this for us this morning? Let me leave with you some pointers to reflect upon. Whatever the appearances that God is dead, which some people still believe, and evil has triumphed, don't be deceived by appearances. Do not be deceived by appearances. Secondly, God's promises are trustworthy. What was foretold in scripture has happened, including the prediction that Jesus would rise from the dead. Thirdly, the gospel offers hope to a lost world, for as Jesus said, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations. That's the promise. And finally, Jesus says to you and to me, as to those first disciples, you are witnesses of these things. We are called to bear witness, to stand up, to tell the truth, to go and tell. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, gracious God, for the truth of the gospel, so preciously preserved for us that we are without excuse. We cannot claim ignorance, for you have caused your word to be written for our learning. So we pray that you would help us to read, mark, learn, inwardly digest it, and to faithfully obey it in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.